Welcome to It Takes Two to Tango, conversations that move us. I'm Nat. And I'm Martina. And together we are two life coaches on a mission to make a world a better dance floor. And in this series, we invite you into a metaphorical dance. It's a conversation about how to partner with life in a more meaningful way. We will translate some of the concepts we have learned from Argentine tango and ballroom dancing off the dance floor so that you can experience the kind of bliss that we experience in partner dancing in your life and leadership. So uh, may I have this dance? <laughs> of course, thank you. <laughs> All right, so um, today we're going to start off the episode by sharing a little bit about us so you get to know us better and specifically how we started dancing Argentine tango. Um, so I'll start first. Um, I actually started off as a ballroom dancer. I started as a student and I've always been a student, honestly. Um, but I started back in the fall of 94, and I know that specifically because that's when I started grad school here in, in Boston. And uh, I didn't know anyone here, and my ex-girlfriend back in Chicago had done a little bit of social ballroom dancing, and so I thought, hmm, it might be something to do to learn. And when I first walked into the studio, I was super shy, very self-conscious, and... Um, I just wasn't even sure <laughs> what, what I was doing there. Uh, I just remember just feeling like, why would anyone want to dance with me? And there's a couple funny stories there because it turns out that I, I was actually pretty good at dancing, but I didn't think so. And um, I, I would have partners or, or um, other women that would want to dance with me and I would never ask them to dance because I was just uncomfortable. Uh, I didn't know them at that time. And they thought that um, I was a snob um, because, you know, they saw such a great dancer, but I wouldn't ask them to dance. So it's just like interesting perspectives of how people perceive you and how you perceive yourself. Um, much later, uh, my wife and I married um, and uh, she, not, she has a Arthur Murray dance studio and ballroom. And um, one of her students had come back from Argentina and showed us this video of Argentine tango. And we thought, you know, we'll just watch this video and then we'll try to imitate it and do a showcase, do a performance by, by just watching the video. Because we thought, oh, we have enough experience that we could just match it. But then my wife uh, had this idea, well, maybe we should just try taking lessons. And we found a local studio and we took the first beginner's class and it, you know, we thought oh, it was easy enough because um, our ballroom experience translates over somewhat, but it wasn't completely a, you know, apples to apples um, equation. Um, we, we learned early, pretty quickly that uh, there were some things that we had in our bodies, the ballroom that didn't translate well into Argentine tango that we had to relearn or, or unlearn. Um, and so we've been dancing Argentine tango now for about five years. I still consider myself uh, quite the beginner, even though, uh, 
you know, I think that that's how it is with our Tintin Tango is that it's a, it's like learning a language. It takes time to really master it. One well, the good news about being a beginner is that you're constantly in a process and welcoming learning, right? Yeah. Because when, when I sometimes encounter leaders who, you know, they go through this phase where they think they've got it now. Mm. They're starting to lead all these advanced uh, <laughs> steps without having the, the inner technique to be able to support it. And uh, I'm, I always can't wait until they get past this thinking I'm now an advanced or intermediate dancer and they get back to, oh, I'm, I'm a beginner. This is just starting. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's actually a funny story when we, we finished the first beginner's course of um, from our studio and and our teacher said okay you can move on to the intermediate level and we're like are you sure because i don't think <laughs> we belong in the next level next you know group yet and they're like well the fact that you think that is actually a good reason that yeah. you're on there because you know you, you're you're um like you said have that beginner's mind and wanting to learn yeah yeah, thank you for sharing that. That was great to, to hear the whole story. It's wonderful. And uh, like I told you off the record that I got to see one of your showcase performances. So that was kind of fun. So at some point, we'll have to share some of these with our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> so my journey to Argentine Tango actually started officially in 2014. Um, at the time, I had just enrolled in my very first coaching course called Calling in the One with Catherine Woodward Thomas. And so the first step is you go through the program by yourself or on your own, right, as a participant. And so in week six of the seven week program, she posed a dare and said, look, by now I want you guys to do something that's completely outside of your comfort zone and outside of the identity of who you've known yourself to be. So pick something that you're doing just for fun something that you're most likely not good at and can practice just being a total beginner and just do it for the fun of it and to fill the dare. And the next day, a, uh, an email came in about a Viennese waltz boot camp and I happened to be in town, which was rare at the time because at the time I was traveling a lot. I had a different business before coaching. And it was from the tango, or from the instructors that had uh, offered a tango boot camp in 2011, which I had attended, and it was horrible. I was horrible. I was intimidated by the dance, by the instructors, by the people in the room. I felt I didn't fit in. And I remember my teacher at one point even saying, you stand like a fighter. You're a girl, stand a little bit more graceful, you know, stand like a dancer. And I had no idea what she meant. So I concluded back in 2011 that I'm unleadable. I have two left feet and I'm never going to get this. So Viennese Waltz Bootcamp was exactly the right thing for this dare. And I went there, you know, expecting to prove to myself that it's actually true. I have two left feet and I can put this idea of dancing completely out of my mind. It's been always been there since childhood. You know, I didn't grow up with athletics or with dancing or ballet lessons or anything. So it was always in the back of my mind that I would be so cool and it looked so graceful. And so, you know, I guess what happened is that for once I didn't go into a class 
wanting to be an A student. And I, looking back, I think I was more present. I was there for the fun of it. I didn't care if anybody asked me to dance. I was just there to fill a dare. And I loved it. I completely fell in love with dancing. And the cool thing with this boot camp was, you know, I'm, I do really well in immersion settings. So we would meet uh, every other day at 7.30 for two and a half hours for about 10 days, consecutive days. And then it culminated in the whole class, about 50 people, uh, we went to the annual Strauss Ball at the beautiful Spanish ballroom in Glen Echo. And at that ball, it's all formal and it's, it's a beautiful setting. There's no air conditioner though, so you have fans and you get a dance card. And um, they tie a little tiny little pencil to the dance card. And so here is the, the beauty about these classes is you get to know everybody, right? So all the leaders and followers we were gathering in one corner and signing each other's dance card and um, making meeting points where we would meet. And at the end of the night, I walked home with a full dance card. So all these fears of it's going to be like high school and it's going to be awkward and nobody's going to ask me to dance and I'm way too old for this, you know, to start be starting this. Everybody else probably has a ballet background. None of that ended up being true. And so, yeah. And so what happened out of that is, you know, I really wanted to dance more. I, w I was looking for every opportunity and... Um, in July, there was a t another tango immersion course, so I, I uh, dared to join that and I fell in love with that as well. And that, that kind of became my first love, Viennese Waltz being the second. Mm -hmm. And I still was a little bit shy, which surprises a lot of people because I seem to be extrovert to people who don't know me very well. And I was terrified to go to dance events by myself. The good news was somebody had collected all the email addresses of that first waltz group and I decided to just start a little email newsletter and asking people, you know, would you like to go or what else is there, you know, where can we go? And that has grown to a pretty strong community now of people who are just as interested in the three dances that I most love, Argentine Tango, Viennese Waltz and Salsa. And uh, yeah, so we created a whole community out of that because I learned through that email group that I wasn't the only one who was afraid to actually go out by myself. And so we found that it was a lot easier when we got together and had several people with us that spoke the same kind of tango or waltz language. Mm -hmm. So that's my journey into dancing and I'm hooked. I have my own ballet bar now here at home. Um, and I purchased a bar stool because I saw one uh, instructor on Zoom using a bar stool for practices. So that is my COVID time dance partner for now. <laughs> wow, love it. Um, ballroom, uh, not ballroom, but Venus Waltz is actually one of my favorite dances. Just the music. Um, I'm amazed when I look back um, over time of the songs that I've loved through the years, there almost always been a Viennese waltz, you know, three, four timing. So uh, it's just something about that music that, that pulls me in and um, I just love it so much. So it's interesting that we have uh, similar life. Yeah. 
Well, there's actually a little bit of brain science I can share with you about Viennese waltz. I just actually dug that out for another course that I'm teaching right now. About 35 years ago, I was actually teaching uh, motivational seminars for middle management in Germany. And one of the things that I had these guys do, there was new brain science coming out about how do you equalize the two hemispheres of the brain and get greater com um, concentration and focus. And Viennese waltz music actually is very close to the heartbeat. So if you're moving just like walking, like you're moving your arm and your right arm and left leg together and kind of like a, a whisk without a whisk step, right? <laughs> just moving left and right can equalize your brain hemispheres. So we were doing that and having, you know, awkward middle management <laughs> engineers who didn't know where the left arm is and the, the right leg, which I can so relate to because I didn't either. And if my dance teacher listens to this, she's going to be smirking. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that's a very easy way to turn on the brain into a higher gear. So just oh, really cool. trivia. Wow, that's great. Wow. So today um, we're going to talk about what Martina calls the elephant in the room. And um, when she first brought this topic to me, uh, I wasn't so sure about it. Not that I didn't like it, but it, I, I wasn't sure. Um, I was just sharing with her like I needed to bring my full presence to it to really um, allow the ideas to emerge. And um, the elephant in the room are mixed emotions. And so I'm going to have uh, Martina share a little bit more about this. Yeah, thanks, Nat. So you know, last time after we filmed our first episode, we talked about, you know, what actually got us started on doing that. And one of the reasons was we didn't want to wait until COVID is done and we can actually get onto the social dance floor. And so I thought, you know, the elephant in the room right now is we're on Zoom talking about tango instead of dancing it. And in my coaching practice, I actually have a name for those moments when a lot of conflicting emotions come up that nobody wants to talk about. And it's, it's not a feeling, it's actually an experience and it's called grief. And grief is the most universal human experience that every one of us will feel at some point. And it's the most misunderstood. So a couple definitions around that so that we kind of talk on the same page here is that first of all, grief is not a feeling. Grief is an experience. And what grief is, is it's a natural and normal human response to loss or change of any kind. So most of us, when we hear the word grief, we think, oh, thank God, I don't have it. Nobody's died lately or left lately. But when you think about loss and change of any kind, that kind of widens the scope, right? And I'll get back to that. But first, the second definition, second big definition is that grief also is the mixed emotions or conflicting feelings that come up when everything around us that was familiar is changing, right? So any familiar pattern, any familiar... Uh, surrounding environment, familiar relationships, if we lose them or they change, usually we have a whole slew of mixed emotions. So we might 
be sad that somebody is gone, but we might also be relieved that they finally left our house. We might miss the time we spend and the friendship and the closeness, but we might also be happy that we finally have control of the remote control again after the guests left. And how do you talk about the awkwardness of those mixed emotions, right? And that actually, that experience is called grief. And so in the absence of actual social dance events and, uh, you know, I'm beginning to think that it might be a while until singles like me can dance like we used to, where you get to engage on the dance floor with strangers, right? Um, I thought the elephant in the room of what do you do with these mixed emotions? What do you, like, Nat, what do you right now, what are some of the mixed emotions that come up for you in response to the pandemic, the lockdown, and the ways that we have to socially distance? Yeah, when the lockdown first happened, um, it didn't really affect me that much. Uh, I work from home already, and I'm a bit introverted, and um, I call myself a recluse sometimes. So the fact that I didn't have to have some sort of excuse not to go out was really a blessing. Mm -hmm. um, with that though, over time, there are some kind of simple pleasures that I miss, like the convenience of popping to the grocery store, you know, in 15 minutes in and out. Um, it's changed now where you, you're more likely to do that, but I have to time it right, you know. Um, and you know, obviously my wife and I, we get to dance and we have that connection. Um, so I see that as a blessing. Um, but there's also uh, just meeting up with friends and um, like in person and then um, touch, I realize is really important to me, whether it's shaking someone's hand, um, even being close to them is that there's a sense of intimacy that I miss. Um, and then hugs is something I greatly miss with, with friends, uh, even family. Uh, family, you can give hugs, obviously, but, it, but sometimes families of um, far apart, like I'm currently thinking, planning to go visit my family in Chicago and there are all these extra preparations that need to be thought of. And so the things that were just so taken for granted are now things that bring up some sense of, of grief of like, oh, I wish it were like it was before. And yet at the same time, there are things that I'm appreciating even more because of the lens that we're being forced to see life through. Yeah. Yeah. And that brings me to another part of the definition, which is, you know, the things that we wish had ended or were different, better or more. And when you think about that, you know, what I wish was different is I wish we could be dancing at Freedom Plaza in the middle of D.C. Uh, like we've done every summer, you know, in the heat and, you know, with the music outside, watching the moon rise over the Capitol building. 
And like you, I miss my community. My dance family has become my substitute family because my real family lives in Germany and in Dubai. So, you know, I get to see them very rarely. And like you, I don't miss not needing to come up with an excuse when I don't feel social. <laughs> and coaching, the coaching business, of course, I've done most of it on Zoom. But, you know, for this year, my, I had two big goals. And one was I really wanted to start teaching groups in person. I have a beautiful workshop studio here. And so far, I've only got to teach about three groups. And this year was going to be the year where I take that off. And so I actually was, was quite angry at the universe for messing up my plans. <laughs> and the other goal that I had for this year that was, you know, my vision is to find a dance partner to practice with, who is aligned with my values when it comes to dance, who wants to partner and practice and... Um, perform and learn you know to the same level of interest that I do and is matched well in in height and body size so that we even can get back to lifts and um so I was pouting for the first couple of months you know <laughs> yeah. and you know it, uh, I had to resort to my own tools to talk myself through this and on how do you acknowledge these feelings so that they don't start eating you up especially when you're trapped in in your own head and you don't want to talk to anybody about this right so luckily I have colleagues and friends that speak the same language that I can share these things with yeah yeah you know, one of the things that um, I forgot that I missed <laughs> um, when you were talking is uh, this year was a year I was going to do more in-person retreats and uh yeah. You know, take people to these amazing, beautiful spaces and really experience transformation that way. Um, and then the other, you know, because it's interesting is um, I had this inner struggle of like, well, you know, do I go to the studio, um, I dance my, my wife's studio, help out there because, you know, I, I get so engrossed in what I'm doing at home. Um, but one of the things I really miss there is, um, the people, you know, it, it's open at minimal capacity now. And I realized how much energy the people bring that it's not just the, um, the container, the building right now, it's just the container building with some mm -hmm. people, but the, that liveliness with the joy, the passion, the connection community, um, there is a definite, definite, um, absence of that energy right now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally relate to that. And I even miss all the unique quirks of all my dance partners, you know, and, and teachers and uh, the lessons and, you know, the way we differently learn and, you know, how we learn from everybody else. You know, I, I do miss all that. And so I have another question for you along those same lines. And that sure. is, what is one thing that surprised you about yourself about COVID? You know, because a lot of times, yes, there's things that we miss and there are things that we're uncomfortable with or that impact us negatively. But there's also the things that surprise us like, oh, my goodness, I would have never learned X, Y, Z or experienced X, Y, Z if this hadn't happened. So what, what's something like that 
Um, I would say what has surprised me most is how much more work I needed to do with surrendering and letting go and out of attachment. Um, especially more recently in the last several weeks, I realized, um, you know, because of everything that has changed in the world where we used to put our look outside for energy and now all of that is quiet. And so the only place you could really look is here, right? So unless you want to engage in other additions like Netflix, binge watching and that sort of thing as a way to avoid. But like for me, it's really front and center and it's helped me see like, oh, I have um, <laughs> more work, more energy to invest in letting go of outcomes, um, letting go of, of even like wishing how things were different really making peace with the present moment has been um, my greatest gratitude and my greatest suffering. Yeah. yeah, I totally get that. I totally get that. Yeah, what surprised me is um, how much solitude I actually crave. Mm -hmm. You know, last year in October, I was at a at a retreat in Concord, Massachusetts, actually, where we were walking the path of Emerson and um, Henry David Thoreau and stayed in the Colonial Inn and also did a pilgrimage up to the bridge where the shot uh, heard around the world was fired. And um, there was a, a moment where we were invited to let go of something. And the one thing that I promised to let go, and, and we were invited to really think deeply about, you know, are you sure you really want to let this go? And so what I was letting go on that bridge into the river <laughs> was any unhealthy aspect of isolation. And then COVID hit and, um, you know, part of me is going, wait a second, I've trained all my life for this. You know, I'm really good at this thing, but it sucks. And once I got past that, I realized, wait, you know, there's a lot of things about solitude, not isolation, but solitude that I actually cherish. And um, you just met my cat who was making some, some sounds here of displeasure because she thinks the afternoon belongs to her today. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so getting acquainted with the difference between isolation and solitude was a big surprise for me. And at the same time, I, you know, I pride myself of working a lot on Zoom and having a pretty good understanding with it and having taught a lot on Zoom. What also surprised me is the Zoom fatigue at the end of the day that sometimes can get to me, that that actually is a real thing. So I'm, I've become a lot more conscious about stepping away in between classes and moving. Uh, lately, the, I've been turning on tango music and just practicing a few steps from the last lesson mm -hmm. or doing some other movement just to kind of break the routine and literally get away from the screen. 
So, so that about me. So that's for our audience. I'm curious if you've already made a list, everyone, about you know the things that you have been missing or that have been hard for you. And then number two question, you know, what, what kind of things have surprised you about yourself that you didn't know about yourself that you've learned or that were even pleasant through this lockdown? Yeah, and, and one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about this uh, is, you know, for a lot of us in the coaching world, personal development, uh, self-improvement, uh, we can fall into the trap of skipping ahead to um, looking for what we're grateful for as a way to avoid feeling what's uncomfortable. Um, we can, you know, we were told constantly to focus on what's positive. Um, but there's value at looking at uh, what um, doesn't feel as good. I'm not going to call it negative. Um, it's not negative. It just, it's just something that's very real about life, loss. Yeah. I call it uncomfortable. Yeah, perfect. And uh, it, it's important to address this because if it, if it goes unaddressed, then it starts to eat at us. Uh, and, you know, it, in my work, I see this a lot um, when I talk to clients about unconditional receiving is that they have childhood conditioning that uh, prevents them from feeling like they can speak up about things that are important to them because the fear of loss, the fear of loss of love or the fear of, you know, looking or coming across pushy or needy or whatever, whatever that conditioning is, it holds us back from really feeling fulfilled, um, keeps us feeling, keep us from feeling connected to the people that we really want to feel connected to. And I really found it fascinating, Martina, when you, you talked about how, um, how this shows up on the dance floor, if, if you can share more about that. Yeah, you know, it, this, there's two things I, I want to add to that. And, and one is, you know, in my work as a grief recovery specialist, of course, I see what happens, you know, we call it unresolved grief those things that are eating at you. And, and I like to use the uh, analogy of a steam kettle where we put anything that we don't know how to handle into the steam kettle. And then we don't actually know who controls the volume or the, the heat to that steam kettle. So all we can do is just blow off some steam every now and then, right? And that looks like um, we call them short-term energy relieving behaviors like food or um, sleeping pills, you mentioned Netflix, binge watching, you know, all those kind of things that we do to evade actually feeling or numbing these uncomfortable feelings. And the way I think they show up on the dance floor is that we hold back, right? We step into an embrace, but we're not quite present. And so we think more about the next step and what steps we remember and going through the motions. We talked a little bit about that in the last episode and miss out on the connection and on the present moment because we are not even aware of all the unresolved stuff that is dancing with us on the dance floor. 
It's literally like you are dancing with an unspoken elephant in the middle of the room that nobody addresses. And, you know, you're dodging it and you feel it in the body. You feel it as tension. You feel it as you said that um, when, when you first started dancing, people thought you were a snob and yet you were shy, you were uncomfortable, right? So I think sometimes we might make assumptions about ourselves or other people on the dance floor and what we don't know about ourselves or about them is that they carry some, you know, unknown, unresolved emotions with them. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, what you just shared there brought up a, a story. My, my very first ballroom performance uh, I, at that time, you know, I mentioned I was very shy, very self-conscious. I was so worried about how other people thought of me. And so I remember that first experience because when I look back, one is, um, I danced a whole routine and, um, I did not really hear the music that well. Um, I wasn't aware of anyone else in the room, even though people said they were cheering for me and calling my name, like it was just like oblivious to that. Um, and it just like all happened, you know, I didn't really even dance on the music very well. <laughs> and, um, but I bring this up because the unresolved emotion and feeling that I had was like, I'm not good enough. I need to perfect this so that I look good. But in the end, it still compromised my experience mm. of the dance. And so I really want to um, point to this because it's not so much about performance and how you look. Like you can perform really well and we can put a lot of energy into looking good. But are you present for that experience? Yeah. Right? Because... We, again, we can perform really well and look good on the outside, but if we're not present because we're not addressing what needs to be talked about, then we miss out on the experience. Yeah, and our partner does. Yes. And that taking that off the dance floor, it's the same in the boardroom, right? Or in, in a leadership situation. When we don't address the elephants in the room, they have a way of creeping in into every single interaction, right? Especially when there's changes going on. Like, you know, uh, the questions that are up for many now is, you know, how do we measure performance when everybody's working from home? Do we need to bring them back into the office so that we can actually see people work? And um, what I find, you know, sometimes these unexpressed elephants are emotions and sometimes they are unexpressed expectations because we assume that everybody thinks the way that we do, right? And in a performance, we assume that we both know the same choreography. As a follower, you know, my job on the dance floor is to wipe my slate clean, especially before a performance, just in case my leader dances something completely different. It doesn't look good when I stay with the choreography and my leader is leading something different and all of a sudden you have martial arts competition instead of a Viennese waltz or Argentine tango on that dance floor. And, you know, 
in, in leadership situation, I see that a lot as well, where all of a sudden there is this energetic tug of war going on. And what's really going on is, is that there are some unexpressed elephants that have crept into the room that somehow in, in the grief recovery, again, we call that undelivered communication and in particular undelivered emotional communication. You know, the things we wish we would have said or that they should have said, the things we wish we would have done or we wish that they had done differently, and the thank yous we didn't say, the praise that we didn't give, or the ways we didn't stand up for ourselves. All those things, you know, can cause unresolved emotions that can completely throw us off in whatever we call our performance of any given day. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, like you said, this is not about now pitching a tent in the discomfort and dwelling on it. Right. So, um, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's not about dwelling on it, but it's, it's about giving space for it. I like to think of our emotions or, or the, the, you know, I should talk about grief as an experience. Um, I like to think them of, of um, think of them like little kids, like, um, you know, if you're the parent and these, your emotions are um, kids asking for attention, right? They're, they're on, on your leg, pulling at your pant leg, calling out your name. They want to be addressed. Uh, they want attention, they need attention. And sometimes all you need to do is give attention and then they let go of their relentless, um, you know, uh, attention getting behaviors. And the true, same is true for grief and, and other um, experiences, emotions, is that um, they're an energy that, that wants to be addressed, that wants space. And when you give your presence to them, then they can dissipate. Uh, but it, because our culture has taught us that emotions are a form of weakness and that we have to keep it together, then that also complicates, uh, you know, this issue of being able to speak up about uh, our experience. It, it, it's, you're, you're not weak. It, it's just the programming that says that you are. And the more space that you can give to yourself to these issues that want your attention, the more whole and complete and um, um, fulfilled you're going to feel. It, it's, it's really quite the paradox because we're taught that the fulfillment comes from the achievement and the performance <laughs> and, and, and from someone that has lived that journey over and over again, it does not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. There's actually, you know, when we talk about grief, there's, there are several myths that most of us have been taught on how to grieve. And one of the big ones is be strong and be strong for others. And it doesn't work in grief, right? Because it just puts everything in that metaphysical uh, <laughs> steam kettle and it doesn't work on the dance floor 
because now we're strong arming each other again <laughs> across across that floor and it doesn't work in in professional situations and leadership situations and yeah like you said you know it hampers with performance you're at the top of your game the more vulnerable you are the more open you actually are to addressing that what we call emotional honesty mm-hmm. you know one thought that i thought that um is another good outcome out of the COVID times is that some of the things that used to be awkward like negotiating do i or don't i hug somebody or you know me as a german we we usually take our shoes off right and it was always now that i have a dance floor too how do i tell people that don't dance would you please remove your shoes now i can blame it on COVID. (laughs) so negotiating some of these boundaries has just become a lot easier on the other hand you know now a conversation around the dance floor might include a consideration, you know, what is your lifestyle? You know, who do you see? What do you do? So that I can make a decision. Do I want to share the air that I breathe in a close embrace with you? So it's, it's, and if not addressed, it can become an elephant, right? Yeah. Right in the middle between of us, right in the middle of the embrace. So the suggestion is address it. You know, if you feel it, it's worthy of, of your exploration, of addressing just for yourself at first and then finding a graceful way once you've processed your own stuff and taken responsibility for your part, then to address it with the other person that it concerns. It'll also minimize gossip when we do that, which is awesome. <laughs> right, right. So our suggestion for you this week, um, or you know, whenever you watch this, is to take some time and uh, create space for yourself and address these mixed emotions. Um, give your give give them time, give them your attention. Uh, an exercise that I like to give my clients is to take a sheet of paper, a notebook, a napkin, if you will, and write down what is in your head. Um, what you're feeling so that they're out of your head and out of your 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 body in a sense and you can see them clearly Um, this helps prevent the whole like spinning of of thoughts Um, your mind spinning out of control and just give yourself attention because as uh, Martina was just saying is that oftentimes if we don't address what we need to see we try to get it from other people and um, that is a path for uh, more suffering, (laughs) unfortunately, um, or fortunately. So the more that you can be the source of love, attention, compassion for yourself, the less that you will be trying to get it from other people. Yeah. Yeah, and an exercise that uh, I give my clients is to just become quiet in a space where you can be private, you know, and sometimes it might be the bathroom. (laughs) And you just take a couple of breaths and tune in and um, tune into that younger, tender part of you that makes conclusions about the world that are probably not up to date, but that you learned when you were very little. And you do that by just asking yourself, you know, so, you know, little one, what are you feeling? And then you wait for a response. And then you just mirror back, you know, the 
that inner part might tell you, oh, I'm really tired right now. And you mirror back, oh, I see you're tired. What else are you feeling? And I might say, well, you know what? I'm upset about this conversation from this morning. Oh, I see you're very upset about this conversation. And what else are you feeling? And it's more about just recognizing and naming the feelings without judging, explaining, or asking why they are there, just mirroring back, these are the feelings. Because when you actually give these feelings a name, you all of a sudden get to have the feeling instead of these feelings having you. And it creates an inner dialogue with yourself that is worthy exploring and worthy creating a new relationship with. And you will notice that then you're more likely to train others to be observant of your feelings as well. Because we train other people to treat us the way we treat ourselves. Mm. So, so take out a notepad, make, uh, get it out of your head, and then have a conversation with yourself. And if somebody asks you why you do that, say, Nat and Martina gave me permission to do that. It's <laughs> not crazy. It's normal and natural. <laughs> yeah, or it can become more natural. Um, yeah. Or you practice it. So, in conclusion for today, um, here, just as review, um, what we suggest uh, for you to follow through with. Um, one is either have a conversation with your friend or with yourself, or even comment on our Facebook page. Um, what are some of the things that you most missed during the pandemic? Uh, what are some things that you learned or that, you, that positive, positively surprised you about yourself? What have you learned about addressing the elephants in the room? And what uh, is a skill you think you might need to learn to develop more courage, more elegant, elegant grace to do that in a more effective way? So whether you're a dancer or not, we welcome and look forward to your perspectives and to your experiences. We invite you to follow our page and invite friends to join our dance floor. So thank you for sharing this dance with us. And remember, it takes two to tango and to create conversations that really move us. I'm Martina. And I'm Nat. Two life coaches on a mission to make the world a better dance floor.